Bart, thank you, thank you. Well, good to be with you all. I just love being here and teaching this group. We've been talking about how we grow. We've said that there's a wonderful mystery to how we grow in the timing of it, in the way God changes us over time, often imperceptibly. But it's not mysterious what our role in that is. And so we've been trying to bring clarity and simplicity to something that is often mysterious to us, but sometimes I think we over-spiritualize and over-mystify Christian, the Christian life and Christian growth. I don't think it's, it's ever been complicated. It's never been easy, but it's never been complicated. So we want to demystify that. As a matter of fact, uh, I had a prof who one of his areas of expertise was this whole idea of mystery in the Bible. And very often people think of mystery as things that you find inscrutable and unable to figure out. Well, very often in the Bible, mystery is not something that we can't figure out. It's something that was previously unrevealed, but now for us has been revealed, primarily in Christ. And so, so let's, let's not overcomplicate, let's not over-spiritualize spiritual growth of the Christian life. We've been trying to uncomplicate this this week, and what we did was just introduce it, and last night we talked about the gospel core of all of this, and so we, we said, uh, again for review for those of you who weren't here, that we grow in our role in it by applying ourselves to habits of grace, which are spiritual disciplines, practiced with our bodies, mostly in normal life, rooted in the local church. And they're habits of grace because our growth in godliness is a gift of God through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we depend entirely on Him for this. So we said, though, that the goal of our growth is not our growth. The goal of our growth is, why does it, the goal of our growth is intimacy with and enjoyment of God. Let's not turn spiritual growth into something that's self-focused, that's human-centered. It's got to be God-focused. Our, our growth, our development, even our salvation is not the end goal of God's work in us. It's Himself. It's His glory. Our enjoyment of Him leads to glorifying Him with our lives. And this is the working out of the gospel, and we've been making a very strong point that we work out our faith. We don't work for our faith. We don't earn anything. We don't prove anything. We don't demonstrate our worthiness of anything. We give up on that whole idea, and we receive by grace God's work in our lives. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Our sins are paid for. Our application to the habits of grace are not earning anything for God. Jesus earned it all. This is a pursuit of God, an enjoyment of God that leads to glorifying Him. The righteous Jesus for the unrighteous, all of us, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then we also highlighted Romans 6, 4. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of 
life. And this newness of life is what we're talking about when we talk about spiritual growth, of transforming work God does in us. That's the newness of life we walk in. We said last night that the Christian life is often described as a walk, as a journey, a path we are following. The Christian life is the way we are taking. It's a journey we're all on, and that is a journey of newness of life. The old is gone, the new has come, the dead is gone, the life is here, and that's the life we live now. We are people who should be living and walking a victorious, glorious, joyful, hopeful, vibrant Christian life. And it starts with Jesus and his finished work on our behalf. And I, I got you all last night to promise, as we talk about what we do, to never disconnect that to what Jesus has done and fully accomplished for us, lest we fall into legalism or moralism or religiosity, which has nothing to do with the gospel of grace. Yes? Okay. Any questions so far, comments, things you've been thinking about? Tim? Yes. Well, glory to God is the goal. Yeah, glory to God is the goal. And the, the goal on the way there is enjoyment of and, and, and delighting in Him. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think in a fallen world, as fallen people who will have a battle with the old man, even though Jesus put him to death our entire lives until we see Jesus face to face, at times have to fight for delight. We have to persist in pursuing enjoyment of God. It, it doesn't come naturally. Because self-absorption comes naturally, and that is counter to enjoyment of and satisfaction in God. I, I want to delight in myself first and foremost and finally. And so, yeah, there, there are plenty of days where, where we need to pursue, and even I would use the term fight for delight. That, that's something that we do. And that's, that's why I'm talking about these habits of grace. I think these habits of grace when we attend to them, when we apply ourselves to them, lead to delighting in God. They're a means to something much more glorious than just character formation or, or even my own transformation. That, that transformed heart becomes more Godward. It becomes more resting in God, delighting in God, enjoying God, being satisfied in Him which slays idols in my life at the same time. Those two always go together. Because when I see God for who He is, the idols I formerly worshipped pale in comparison to Him. And so attending to these nine things we've talked about, I think are, are a way of cultivating a delight in Him. I don't, think, I don't want to over-romanticize it or make it overly sentimental or anything like that. I think we've, we've allowed 
a romanticized version of love to invade the Christian faith. There, there are ideas in the Bible that, that, for instance, the husband and wife imagery of the Bible, uh, Song of Solomon kind of delighting, so God creates sex to, to give us a physical example of intimacy. So there are marriage, uh, you could even say romantic versions of this, but I think rom-com romance invades our understandings of that too much rather than a more biblical context for that. And I have a friend who wrote a whole book on that concept that we've overly romanticized these things in a contemporary way. So, so we're not talking about a sort of a sentimentality about it. We're talking about a, a delight and resting in finding our Sabbath rest in, in, in God so that even the greatest delights of this world can't compare that's why jesus says unless you hate your family you don't understand what it means to love me he's saying relatively speaking even the greatest gifts of life like like marriage and family and can't compare different solar system than your love and delight for god so so i i think that's why i'm trying to connect these habits of grace to delighting in god which is glorifying to him Merely obeying God without delighting in Him and obeying Him because you delight in Him is not glorifying Him the way you're intended to. At times, it's just dutiful obedience on the way there, so I don't want to minimize that that's just reality. But, but glorifying God by delighting in Him is at the heart of the Christian life. Yes? Okay. And it'll look, it'll look different depending on sort of temperament and personality. I don't want to be cookie cutter about this. But, but a, finding your complete Sabbath in him is what we're talking about. Yeah, I remember one time I was married about 18 months. And I adore my wife. I don't know if you've picked that up at all this week. But I adore my wife. And if you know me and if you know my wife... You know, I, I just adore her. And we were married about 18 months one time, and I have a very vivid, vivid imagination. I, I can really, really picture things in my mind. And for some reason, I was in our apartment that we ran a group home, and I was on the third floor apartment, and I imagined Donna dying. And I didn't even realize that it happened, but I looked down and my right hand had become a fist. And I looked at that and I realized what that was. That was a fist in the face of God at the very thought of him taking me from her, taking her from me. And I looked at that fist and I didn't even do it consciously and I thought, oh no, I need to repent because this gift of God to me, of my wife, had become something that I realized I, I would have been resentful if God had taken her from me when she's never been mine, right? She's a gift in a possessiveness of that gift. Even a great gift like an amazing wife can become an idol if it competes with your satisfaction in God. Realizing that although God cares for us through people like amazing husbands or wives or friends or, or, or siblings or people in the family of God, those, those are conduits of his care. He's the one we take our greatest delight in. And if we would ever think of 
shaking our fist in his face for taking away an earthly means of his care for us. We're we're missing the difference between the caregiver and the means by which he does that, which are all dispensable, right? He's the only indispensable caregiver. And so I remember, I did, I went right in my bedroom, I got on my knees on the side of my bed and I repented of that fist when I thought of God taking my wife. She's never been mine. He's the author of life. He's the giver of life. He's the taker of life. I trust him with that. And he'll care for me if he takes my most precious gifts he's given because he's the greatest gift himself. And so, so that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a transfer of our deepest affections even from the things God gives us to the gift giver. It's amazing how, I understand why people throughout history have have worshipped creation. I understand that. I do. I I was in Kings Canyon today with some dear friends, and I understand why people are inclined to worship creation. But what a tragedy when the thing God creates to image himself and bring glory to himself becomes the terminus of the glory, the terminus of the delight. It's a means to glorifying the creator, not an end in itself. And nothing is an end in itself but God. And so that's the kind of delight we're pursuing in God. So these habits of grace, these nine habits of grace we've been talking about, these are means of cultivating deeper delight in God. Yes? I'm so concerned that so often spiritual disciplines seem to be all about me becoming a better person. And that's part of it, but becoming a better person in God's definitions is becoming a person who delights in God more and and glorifies Him through that delight. And delight always leads to obedience. Always. Those two have got to be connected. Obedience disconnected from delight is legalism and moralism. And that's completely counter to the Christian view of things. And so those two have to be connected. That's why I say... Um, these, these things we do out of obedience and discipline are to cultivate hearts of delighting in and enjoying God and glorifying Him in that delight. Yes? Okay, so this isn't primarily character transformation, although it's that. It's not primarily um, a personal development, although it's that. You know, my father always is pleading with me to write a book that lots of people will buy. Which often means you just make it kind of cheesy because it seems that often really popular means not very good, in my opinion. I'm sorry, that's not always the case, but he said, just write a really cheesy Christian novel. Make lots of money and then just write whatever you want for the rest of your life. I said, Dad, I can't do that. But, but I, know, I know how to write books that will sell a lot in their life hack books. We love life hack books. If you want hits on the internet, just, just talk about uh, seven ways to whatever. We love that. Just give me quick, easy solutions. That's so American. You know, Ben Franklin, a stitch in time saves nine. Do these seven things and you have a better marriage. We love that stuff. And that's why other world religions are appealing to people. You know, just do the five pillars of Islam and you're good. Just do these six things, and and we like that. It makes us feel like we got it. We got, okay, just give me the list. I'll do it. I'm in control. I did it. Thank you. 
And that's so not the Christian faith, which is in this, this pride-crushing grace. It's completely different than what we learn when John Bowl is an athlete learning to, to put in his work and get the results. Right, John? That's what you learn. And then we're told, no, this thing is not that. It's all grace. Right? And, and now we're going to talk about what we do, which is why it can be helpful to have been an athlete when you kick this into gear if you don't disconnect it from grace. But that's, that's what we so often, you can tell how concerned I am that we not do this. Okay? We're not going to do that, right? Okay. Any other questions, comments, and what we've done so far? Has that helped him? Okay. Anything else? All right. So we've said that these habits of grace are these nine. Now, uh, every time I teach on this, I get lots of questions, which is great, because I'm going to write a book on it, and this is refining the book. So thank you for being my editors as we do this. But every time I do, people come up and say, why isn't love on the list? You know, we, we need to devote ourselves to love. Why isn't humility on the list? Why isn't hope on the list? Um, last night it was gratitude. Why isn't gratitude on the list? Those are great questions. But these are disciplines, things we do to cultivate attitudes, character traits, fruit of the Spirit, like gratitude, like love, like hope. Yes? Now, I, I could write a second book on that, but this one is on, on activities we engage in that to do it right, require those character traits and deepen those character traits, deepen those virtues, deepen those fruit of the Spirit, deepen those attitudes, but we kick them in the gear. And those things find expression in these things and they cultivate those character traits, attitudes, fruit of the Spirit. Yes? Okay. All right. Does that help? So, these nine things are what we're talking about. So let me make some qualifying statements, some clarifying statements so we don't misunderstand what's going on here. I mentioned this one last night in response to a question. All these habits work interdependently. That's such an important word. I've learned to love that word interdependent, interdependency. You know, when you're born, you are utterly dependent for, for every meal, for every diaper change, I mean, it's just amazing how utterly dependent you are. I, I sometimes use the illustration, uh, when we're born, we're nothing but plugs, right? Is there an outlet nearby? It's not capped. It's capped. Anyway, we're just plugs, right? Plugs, all they do is take. But throughout our lives, we should increasingly, we never stop being plugs. We never stop needing. We never stop requiring but throughout our lives, we should increasingly become outlets. Yeah, yes, into which others can plug and draw resources. Yes, but we never stop being plugs, even though we increasingly want to become outlets. So you want to go from utter dependence to an increasing kind of independence, but ultimately an interdependence, where you never stop being needy, ever, Needy and Christian are two words that go together as comfortably as possible. We don't like that, but it's the case. Just get used. If you're going to think of yourself as a Christian, neediness for God through his means of grace, 
including others, is descriptive of us. We are a needy people. We need God for our very existence, for every breath. And we need his means of grace, including the people of God, for becoming who he's created us to be. So all these habits of grace work interdependently. And maybe you even thought that as as we went through this. This is really sluggish. Do we need a new battery, do you think, Jason? I don't know what's going on. It's super sluggish. There we go. Um, So as you look at this, you should say, oh, yeah, right, right. So if I'm going to go to the Word, if I'm going to be a man or woman of the Word, I need to go to the Word prayerfully. When you read the Bible, I hope you don't just rush right in, but you go with a sense of, Lord, I need you. I need you to understand this. I need you to transform me through this word. I need you to clear out the distractions right now. I need the spirit of God to do his work through his word that he inspired. I hope you realize you need to go to the word prayerfully. And you need to go to the word worshipfully. And the word should be transforming you in all these other ways that lead to these means of grace. And I hope if you have a prayer life, you do it informed by, instructed by the scriptures. I hope you have a very word-saturated kind of prayer life. I hope you pray the way the Bible teaches you to pray. I hope you pray even sometimes word-for-word prayers that the Bible gives us. Praying through the Psalms is a wonderful way to learn to pray. And so you, you can't be prayerful if you're not word-saturated, right? In, in the way we're supposed to be. In worship, worship needs to be completely informed by the word. The word should lead you to worship, but worship needs to be word-based. That's why I love working with worship leaders who really care what the Bible says about worship and know that and are students of the word. Remember our worship leader when he started our church back in 99, when when I started at our church, I called him on a Wednesday early on in our time together, and I said, Walt, uh, what'd you do today? And he said, I was studying the passage you're preaching on on Sunday so I can be prepared to lead worship. Walt studies the passage, Kenny, our other worship leader, studies the passage the preacher's preaching on as if he were going to preach it himself so that he can craft a time of worship that dovetails with the sermon in ways where I must tell you, I get up and I think, I'm not sure I have much more to say. Every song, every prayer, every time of reflection, every scripture reading was preaching the sermon I'm about to preach. This is beautiful. That's why we we don't call our worship leaders just worship leaders. We call them worship pastors. We call them, we don't see them as somehow stealing our thunder if they're stepping on the message. That's, That's just a wrong way to think. And we, we want them to, to be bringing home the message. And it was beautiful. And it was funny because he's worked in the entertainment industry as a singer, his studio singer his whole life. I said, what would you do yesterday? He said, oh, I sang in the Terminator 2 soundtrack. I said, oh, that's great. Uh, preparing to lead worship, digging the passage in Terminator 2 the day before. That's kind of odd. But, but <laughs> that's, that's his life. But 
But the word needs to inform our worship, right? It needs to instruct us. Our philosophy of worship needs to come out of the scriptures. And we better prepare worship times and go into worship times prayerfully, right? We shouldn't even see corporate singing as is primarily what worship is. It's a lifestyle, and prayer is just as much worship as singing is. I remember I was at a college meeting one time, and they announced that there was going to be a time of worship next Friday night on campus. This wasn't at Biola. It's another place I was teaching. And the student said, next Friday night, we're going to have a worship night. And he said, and I promise you, it's going to be all worship. And then he said, I promise, there won't be a preacher for miles. And a cheer went up. In other words, just singing, no, no preaching. As if... The preaching of the word isn't a worshipful activity. As if prayer or, or scripture reading isn't as much worship as, as singing. And so that's why at our church we actually use the term sung worship. We don't just say worship as if we always mean singing, right? So the sung worship relative to the preached worship and the prayerful worship and the scripture reading worship, yes? So, so you can see how these all work together. Um, and they lead to one another. So there's an interdependence in all of these. There should be a great commission missions mentality as you go to the word and as you're led by the word and your prayer. And all these things work interdependently. Yes? Okay. We must, uh, yes. Habits of grace look and feel mostly normal. I mentioned this the first night. I'm convinced Again, that we've over-spiritualized spirituality, we read missionary biographies, and everything seems like a dramatic near-martyrdom experience when it really counts. And like I said last night, we say things to youth leaders like, oh, be faithful because you don't know if the next Billy Graham's in your youth group. Well, that's highly unlikely, actually, percentage-wise, and I'm not sure we need another Billy Graham, quite frankly, in, in the way things are these days and the way God seems to be working, and uh, and. I, I don't want to devalue a faithful homemaker that no one ever writes a biography on but had a massive impact for the name of Christ because of her faithfulness. I don't want to minimize a, a, a construction worker who faithfully serves God his whole life and, is, and loves the people in his church but doesn't become famous at all. It's as if we should be faithful because a famous person might be in your youth group. I think we need to stop thinking that way. I understand why that's meaningful to us, but I think it misleads us into thinking about the Christian life in these radical ways. I stopped using the word radical a long time ago to describe anything that the Bible just describes as normal Christian discipleship. It looks radical to the world, but it's not radical biblically. So let's not call it radical, let's just call it normal. This is called a biblical Christian living, which means everything pales in comparison to God himself and serving him. So, it looks and feels mostly normal. Even if you read the Bible, you know, you got Moses at the burning bush, and it's this massive highlight. But the Bible's a lot of times like Sports Center. You get all these highlights packed in, but you need to keep reminding yourself, oh, yeah. And before the burning bush, there was 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep, right? And before that, there was 400 in Egyptian captivity. Yes? 
And so that means most of us are in the 400 and the 40, not the burning bush era of what God's doing. And so we need to draw from those examples and the times in our lives when we do experience the dramatic, not to become dramatic experience junkies, but to set the course for knowing God's at work, whatever it looks like. And it mostly looks normal. It mostly looks like going to work, getting up early and reading your Bible. It mostly feels like a grind a lot of the time. And, and that's, just, that's just the reality of the Christian life, which I love. It's not mountaintop experiences, mostly. It includes those, but only to set a trajectory and a pattern and a kind of belief that God's working all the time when you come off the mountain and find the people worshiping a golden calf, like Moses did. So, it looks and feels mostly normal. Habits of grace take discipline. Like I said last night, I want to recover a very positive, even delighting in words like discipline. We hear words like discipline, it's like, drudgery, burdensome, right? No, Jesus says, my burden is light. That's an interesting, paradoxical sort of seemingly contradictory thing. But he's saying there is a difficulty in following me. But in the midst of that difficulty, you will find the Spirit of God carrying you along. If you hang in there, you will find a lightness to the burden. You will find an ease to the yoke. That's the kind of descriptions Jesus gives for the Christian life. That means there's short-term sacrifice for incredible long-term results and payoff. It'll all be worth it. God promises you that. So so it takes discipline. I, I would love for us to have a renewed, right, positive concept of words like discipline, words like devout, Words like pious. When's the last time you heard the word pious used positively? It's not a bad word. Religious. I know. One of my chapters in my book, 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying, is we should stop saying Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a religion that maintains a relationship. That's an oversimplification. It's an overstatement to correct religiosity. I get it. There's truth to it. But when we say things like that, It makes it seem, especially to younger people who are my people, and when they come to college that I work with mostly, it says to them, they hear that as, oh, so it's this oozy, mystical, undefinable, I never quite know how I'm doing or what I'm supposed to be doing. It's relational, it's sentimental, it's all about feelings, it's not about doing anything in particular. And if you ask a question like, well, are you reading your Bible? You're just a legalistic, overbearing grace killer. And and so we've got this dichotomy between between discipline and grace that the Bible doesn't see as a dichotomy. Grace, discipline is is something we devote ourselves to woven in through and through with grace so that we understand grace better, not in contradiction to it. Um, So habits of grace take discipline. I would love for us to learn to enliven our souls when we hear words like duty and discipline and and habit and religion and 
And it, it means you don't just go to church when you feel like it. My, I got to tell you, so many of my students, and, and so many of my students think that doing something when they don't feel like it is hypocrisy. And I, I try to tell them, no, that's actually the majority of my Christian life, doing what I don't feel like doing. Now, sometimes it's coming naturally, and that's beautiful. But a lot of times, it's flat-out discipline on the way to more instinctive, more natural Christian living. And I've been at it a long time. So I talked to a 19-year-old, and they think if they, if they act in a way that isn't flowing from their guts, it's somehow inauthentic. And I think the Bible considers that integrity. Living according to what you believe in spite of how you feel isn't inauthentic hypocrisy. It's actually integrity. It's living on what you believe in instead of how you feel at the moment. We live in a culture that has, has radically affirmed immediate subjective experience and feelings as the determiner of truth and reality. And so much of the Christian life is, is saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Like Jesus set an example for us in the garden in his doing that. So, so discipline is a glorious thing that we devote ourselves to. And I know you've experienced in other times of life, right? Whether it's exercise, whether it's walking into a difficult conversation that you don't want to have, but you know you should and you do, or, or, or preaching the gospel to your neighbor that you've been wanting to do that with for two years, and you finally go over and say, hey, I'd love to tell you about Jesus. And you do, and you leave saying, why was I so intimidated by that? I feel alive after doing that. And, and we often dread things that are so good for us and honoring to God. And, and all it takes is doing them enough to realize, I'm, I'm not intimidated by that anymore. I, I don't dread that anymore. I actually look forward to it. I've done it enough. I've gone through the difficulty of that enough to know the difficulty is a mirage. It's not, it's not what I think it's going to be once I walk into it. Have you had that experience with all kinds of things in your life that, are, that require discipline? Yes. Okay, I certainly have. It's so much of my life where, where I have this, oh, I don't want to do this. I know I should, and I do, and I say, why, what was that about? Why didn't I want to go, go for a brisk walk after dinner? <laughs> it's glorious, you know? And, and so, so, yes, you with me? Comments or questions? How are we doing? I'm not sure where you are. I usually have a good sense. I'm not sure. Do we need a DTR? Yes. Tell me your name. My name's Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Uh, so discipline is so essential, like really fundamental to our lives. I like to talk about uh, forgiveness uh, often. <laughs> discipline. discipline. Excellent. Right, so, so patient endurance for the long haul. Even in that moment, you, you don't want to get up, but you do. You read your Bible and you say, oh, that, was, that was wonderful. Why was it such a battle to get there? I don't know. Satan, maybe, I think. The flesh, yes. 
the, the, the tendency to sloth, the tendency to lack faith, believing that the word of God is actually going to feed my soul like it says it will. So I, I believe it even though I'm not quite sure it's going to. And I do it and I say, well, would you look at that? It fed my soul. Yes, exactly. Discipline is one of the ways we fight for delight. And, and it's a pursuit of what we know is good for our souls and glorifying to God. And, and sometimes we do spend time in the Word and we say, well, I'm not sure what that added up to. You know, four chapters of Leviticus. Wow, okay, here we go. I, now I'm going to charge into the day. But, but we keep storing away money in our spiritual bank account, trusting it's going to reap dividends because God says it will. And, and that, that includes fighting sin that seems so appealing at times. And when we win the victory over that temptation, there's a glorious delight in that because we're enjoying God more than sin. And so, yeah, it's something we stay at after a long period. I said last night that one of my greatest concerns for, for people in our generation is distraction and, and impatience, the lack of long-haul persevering and what we know is good and right and will feed our souls and glorify God. And, and so that's what we're talking about when we talk about discipline. Four habits of grace should all be rooted in the local church. Typically when I talk about this, I will spend an entire session on the local church. You know, fellowship is one of those, and you may be tempted to say, well, uh, that's local church. No, local church is all nine of these when it's expressed ideally as it should be. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen wonderfully outside the, the particular specifics of a local church, like at Hume Lake Christian Camp, that we're all experiencing. We don't, re we don't represent in this room right now a particular local church. We represent lots of them. But, and so it happens outside of that, and I have dear friends who aren't members of my local church that are incredibly edifying in our relationship. So I'm not minimizing the wonder of how God works whenever we apply ourselves to these habits of grace. But all of our practice of these nine things must be centrally located in the context of a good local church or else they won't be what God intends for them to be. Just, for instance, the Word. The Word is being preached in this moment at Hume Lake, but it doesn't come with it in this context, local church authority. If none of you obey what I'm preaching this week, there is no local church authority that goes with that. There's no church discipline that comes out of this. There, there's no, no body life in a local church context with elders and, and missionaries we're sending together collectively. This is a temporary community that I love and appreciate and has great value. But this, this is not the same thing as a local church. Uh, and so... So these things need to be rooted in the local church. I'll hit on a lot of the, the why of this when we talk about fellowship, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, yeah, let us consider how to stir one and up, uh, other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing out. Now, we're gathering together as God's people here this week, tonight, but when biblical writers refer to the gathering, the assembling, they don't have in mind a parachurch organization or you or your friends at Starbucks or golfing on a Sunday morning, just sharing Christian fellowship. They're talking about a local church context 
where all the things the church is are happening. A group of people who raise their hands and say, we're not a parachurch organization like Biola University or Hume Lake, which means we don't have a narrowly focused ministry, which I love. I love that the Gideons hand out Bibles and that's about it, right? Go Gideons, yes? But they're not a church. They haven't raised their hand and say, we're doing everything the local church is called to do. Authoritatively preach the word, practice the, the baptism and Lord's Supper, sacraments of the ordinances. We're not, we're not sending missionaries. We're not carrying out church discipline. We're, we're not take, caring for the widows and orphans in our midst. We're not helping the poor. We're not doing all the things the local church is called to do. That's parachurch. That's great. But even your time here, even your time here, if you're a Christian here tonight, you, you should be translating these things in your local church context and thinking about really kicking them in the gear in the fundamental way in that context. Not at Hume, not with your friends, not, not with a, a select group, but, but in your local church context. That's the only place it kicks in the gear with all the dynamics the New Testament requires for God's people. Paul moves into an area, and what does he tell Timothy to do? Appoint elders in every city. Get a, church, get a real church going. And that's when the word and prayer and worship and missions and serving and giving and, and proclamation, all these things take on a, a dynamic and an authority and an identity that's identifiable and locatable so the pagans in town know where to find you. I'm glad my church has an address. I'm glad people know where to find us. Whether they used to go there and don't anymore because they fell off the wagon for seven years, but now they come back. Or, or, or they hated Christianity, but now they just got it. One woman, there was a woman who got out of jail, and the cops said, ma'am, you need a church. And she said, you, I do? And she said, yeah. And I know a good one. And he drove her from jail to our church. And dropped her off outside our church. And it wasn't a Sunday morning, but there was a big 3rd of July barbecue. Not a barbecue. My friends from the South hate it when I use that word. If it's not bar, there's not barbecue there. It's not a barbecue. But um, it, it was a, it was a uh, cookout. It was, <laughs> it was a cookout. And it was, it was a wonderful 3rd of July cookout and party we were having at our church. And he dropped Julie Klein off fresh out of jail and she walked up and I went over and greeted her my friend John and I sat down and led her to Christ that night and she got plugged into our church for a decade and became an amazing minister primarily in the food bank ministry of our church and she's an, I just talked to her on the phone a couple weeks ago she's moved away since she's taking care of her her elderly mother and her daughter who's gotten in trouble and her granddaughter Julie's taking care of all of them now as a godly woman setting an example because the cop knew where to find a good church and drop Julie off. I love that. I love that our church isn't so spiritually defined. You can't find us in, in the yellow pages if those exist anymore. Okay. Um, so, so, yes, that's my little rant on the church. Okay. Um, this is really important. Habits of grace kill sin. Listen to this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Notice the body image. Remember I said these habits are done in our bodies. Again, I'm concerned about an over-spiritualizing over spirituality. I have a friend who's dealt with depression for decades. 
And, and one day I just sat down and I said, brother, your wife and kids are dying. I understand your struggle, and I've been praying with you about it for decades, and, I, and I've, been, I've been crying with you for decades, but your wife and kids need you, even in your depression. And I say, I know you don't have control like you'd like to over how you feel, but you know what you have control over? Your facial muscles. And when your kids walk through the door when they get home from school, make yourself smile. And when you don't feel like having family devotions after, you know what you have control over? Your legs and your hand to go to the bookshelf, take the Bible off, open it up and read it to your family and then ask your wife to pray. You can do that. And God isn't expecting you to wait to have all the feelings come before you do those things in your body you have control over. I know you don't feel humble before the Lord, but get on your knees anyway and see if some humility starts cultivating in your heart. Do things with your body. It's amazing how our bodies are connected to our hearts and our emotions. It, it is. It's amazing to me. It's really hard for me to be arrogant on my face. Really hard. I was just talking to a brother this morning. We walked around the lake. We were talking about prayer. And, and he talked about forgiveness being a major issue in his life. And he said, the thing that's been, been the, the solution for me is praying for the people who I'm unforgiving for, toward, praying for their good. I don't want to. I don't feel like it. Oh, I feel like praying for them imprecatory psalm prayers that God will bring destruction on their heads. That's what I want to pray for. But when I pray for their good, in spite of not feeling like it, you know what happens? My heart starts to turn toward them. It, it, it's something that happens. It's amazing how our bodies actually have an effect on our souls. And so, so it present, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, and this is very physical language here. And, and we've got to think of our members, everything God gives us, our hands, our feet, our sexual organs, our, our brains, everything belong to God and are to be devoted to Him. Our mouths that we use to talk, our ears that we use to hear, our eyes that we see to, listen, to, to, uh, to see, our hands that we use to click on a mouse, right? On, on things that are honoring to God and good for my soul or not. These are all instruments of, of honoring God or not. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Isn't that beautiful? And, and so we, we put to death sin in our lives by habits of grace. That's what the Bible commands, to put sin to death, to kill sin. Um, there's a great, rap song um let's kill sin look it up it's so good i think of it it goes through my head every time i i think of this idea of putting sin to death now there are some sins that we will battle until we see jesus face to face there there are other sins that i believe god expects us to put to death some people 
have cussed every other words for 30 years. They come to Jesus and they stop cussing. I find that just a miracle. I actually found it a miracle that guys I've known in my life, I worked construction for a long time and played football, so I've known some cussers, let me tell you. I know people who can cuss of a storm. Like, like it takes, takes a kind of real intelligence to cuss really. Like, I've known guys who not only swear between words, but like between syllables. Have you ever met those people? They'll just like, they'll put a cuss word in between syllables. It's just amazing. But some people have, have done that their whole lives, and th then the day they become a Christian, they stop. Other people have to battle that for years before they weed that out, you know? And by the way, we need to know where people start their Christian life and, and have grace for that and have relative expectations sometimes for where people are. I, I have a student who was one of the most feared men in his city. He never went anywhere without his gun. He's high all the time. He, he was a head of a gang in his city. And, and he came to Christ and he told me what he blurted out to his uncle, who was a pastor who led him to Jesus when he became a Christian. And there, there were all kinds of bad words in his confession of faith in Jesus. It was something so right. That's just how he was talking, right? It didn't get edited out immediately, right? So we've got to realize where people are. And, and, and but put sin to death. And I, I, I think sometimes some versions of psychology, some versions of human development teach us that you're just stuck. You're wired that way. Your trauma, your experiences, whatever it is, have gotten you to be who you are. And there's no changing that. That's who you are, and that's a lie. That's a lie. With the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, you are never stuck in any self-destructive, God-dishonoring ways. Never. You're free from the power of sin and death. Free from it. So let's put sin to death, and the habits of grace are a way to get there. And as we've said and spent a lot of time on already tonight, habits of grace express and enable enjoyment of God. I think we've covered that pretty well tonight. Delight yourself in the Lord. See, it's a command. Isn't that amazing? This deep emotion, which is what it is. Now, it's, it's other things too. It's got an intellectual component. It's got a behavioral component. But it's a command. Delighting is a command. We tend not to think things like delight can be a command. And part of the reason, I wrote a whole chapter of a book on marriage on this. Um, on, anyway, I, and, and the first section of the chapter talks about Ways we talk about delighting and being in love. And they're all these out-of-control words, right? I fell in love. Fall, you're not in control when you're falling, right? Beyonce, crazy in love, right? Some worship songs, I'm intoxicated by your love, right? All these things mean is I'm completely out of control of this. Now I get, again, the truthfulness of being enamored. Where, where you're just instinctively, I think that's what we're trying to say, but using all these out of control, crazy, no, Beyonce's crazy in love, right? Help me out here, Beyonce fans, yes, okay. Is it crazy in love? Yeah. There's another one, anyway, but, but all these words we use that talk about just being out of control, and that's what real love is. That's not real love from God's perspective. Delighting, loving is a command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors, your health. That's a command. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You see that? 
See the process? I delight myself in the Lord. I attend to the means of grace by which I do that. And he starts to give me those desires I desire. And he even gives me the desire to desire those desires. How cool is that? Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. It's beautiful. It's a work of God ultimately. So here are the means of grace. Ways we grow. Word. The word serves as this anchor, this lens, this interpretive grid, this perspective giving reality. It helps us understand the freedom we have, but in the boundaries of God's ways. Every time I drive by Princess Meadow, on the way in of here or out of here, I think of the word of God. I love Meadows. Who's a big Meadow fan in here? Oh, I, yes, I love just the sight of a meadow. I love lying in the middle of a meadow. I love running in a meadow. I love just, just enjoying. I've, I've cross-country skied in Princess Meadow dozens of times. I love Princess Meadow. And every time I drive by it, I think we love and I love freedom within boundaries. I think that's what a meadow hits us in our hearts. The desert's a bit unsettling to me. The ocean's a bit unsettling to me. Overly constrained spaces are unsettling to me. But a meadow? Ah, that's hitting on something deep within my soul that I think God put there for me to enjoy. It's wonderful freedom to run through the flowers, skip and dance through them, if you will, within beautiful boundaries that are clear. Yes? So the Word of God, and and look, there are hundreds of verses I could have chosen for each of these habits of grace, but I've chosen ones that are specifically highlighting the work of the Spirit. We said the, the Spirit of God is necessary for these things to work in the beginning. They're a wonderful gift of the Spirit in the definition And I've chosen verses for each of these that highlight the ministry of the Spirit in these habits of grace. So please pay attention to this. I've even got them underlined to make it super easy for you. I am such a helpful helper. Yes, see, underlined. Control you so you can see what I mean. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The Word of God is our anchor it's our ability to see truthfully and we don't boot up with the ability to see truthfully the writer to the hebrew says that we need our senses of discernment trained to discern good from evil we don't naturally know that in spite of what all the disney movies tell you we don't naturally know what's right in our hearts as if we'll just naturally find it there we've got to realize that our hearts are desperately wicked and twisted and and twist the truth, and so we need to go to God's word to learn to think God's thoughts after him and discern good from evil. We find life and godliness in the knowledge, Peter says, of God and of Jesus in the word. And the reason the word is so vital for us ultimately is because it points us to the word in flesh, Jesus himself. And the first reason I believe the word is my ultimate source and authority for truth is because Jesus believed that. It's undeniable when you listen to him teach. What does he say so often when people ask him questions? 
Have you not read? It is written. Here's God himself, but he keeps going back to the word. His disciples discover he's risen from the dead on the road to Emmaus. And when they remember that their hearts were strangely warmed, what they highlight is that he took them to the scriptures, which is what he did even after his resurrection. The risen Christ had Bible studies with his disciples. Isn't that cool? He, he did what we're doing. We're opening the Bible and we're going to it and we're looking at the scriptures to point us to the word in flesh. And Jesus viewed it this way too. He would quote scripture constantly. From the beginning to the end of his life, he's quoting scripture as the source of truth to give us all the answers we need. The Bible says, again in Hebrews, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than every, any two-edged sword, dividing bone and marrow, that it, it discerns the thoughts of our hearts. And when we say, Lord, examine my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me, the way he's going to examine it is when we attend to the word and the spirit works in bringing conviction for that sin. And helping us understand what our delights are or if they're disordered. So the word of God is this fundamental habit of grace. That means we need to be people who read the Bible. We need to be people who memorize the Bible, who meditate on the Bible, who read the Bible through, who read the Bible in focused sections, who listen to the Bible, who have the Bible on our bathroom mirror when we brush our teeth. The Bible needs to be laminated and on our, in our cars, laminated so you can put it up in the shower. I remember I said that to my students one day years ago in my Biola, one of my Biola classes. They have to memorize big chunks of Scripture in my classes. Remember? Big chunks of Scripture. And I, I said, laminate these verses and put them up in the shower. And I went into the locker room shower at Biola, and one of the swimmers had printed up the verses on 8 by 10 pieces of paper all around the shower, laminated. I thought, this is beautiful. He's just bringing it into his, his post-practice memorization. So, so we need to be people of the word. Most Christians, most Christians in American culture, even church-going ones, are functionally biblically illiterate. I, I doubt that's the case in a room like this. But... Less than 4% of my students in Biola can even name all 10 commandments. Now, please don't spend the rest of our time saying, honor your mother and father, keep this out. Do that later. Do that later. But chances are we won't even get to 50% in here. So, but I don't say that to make anybody feel shamed or guilty or anything, but to motivate us to not believe the, the hype that Christians are these people with heads filled with Bible knowledge and they're not doing anything with it sufficiently. That's not our problem. Our problem is we actually tend not to know the Bible very well. We know what's going on Instagram way better, way better on TikTok than Matthew and Mark. And so we've got to be people who just restore this old, wonderful practice of being in the Word in a consistent, ongoing basis. Can I get an amen? Yes. All right. We can't do any of these other things well if we're not doing that well, right? We don't even know how to pray if we don't go to the Word. We don't even know how to worship rightly if we don't go to the Word. We worship in spirit and truth, right? In the tr and we can't obey the Great Commission either as disciples or disciple makers because the Great Commission says not just make current converts who are baptized, so wet converts, no, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded with the whole, which is the whole counsel of God's Word. When Paul leaves Ephesus after three years, what does he highlight? 
You know I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. All of it. Even the unpopular stuff. And so the word becomes the anchor that he and those who follow him are devoted to. And then, and then prayer. Again, highlighting the Spirit's role. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He's so good to us. For we do not know what, we, what to pray for. Can you relate to that? Oh my goodness. I've been praying for the salvation of people in my family for 40 years, over 40 years. I pray for everything I could possibly... Uh, Lord, please, just save him. Lord, Lord uh, bless him so he'll thank you and come to Christ. Lord, take everything from him so he'll get to his knees and thank you. Lord, take my life. I pray, take my life if that'll do whatever it takes, Lord. And now it's just like, ah, Lord, ah. And he says, got it. Spirit says, got it, Eric. And he takes that to the throne, right? Groaning's too deep for words. Prayer is a conversation. So we need to be people who have individual times of prayer. We need to be people who have corporate times of prayer. And we need to be people who are prayerful throughout our days. Like Nehemiah, who seems to be in between sentences when we're told, as he's talking to the king, he prayed to the Lord of hosts. Right? He's in, a co- in the middle of a conversation. You ever do that? You're talking, you're saying words, and inside you're going, oh Lord, please help me to know what to say. Have you done that? Yes? That's being prayerful. You're not on your knees, your eyes aren't closed, right? You're not saying anything audibly, but you're prayerfully having a conversation. I do that almost every conversation I have. I'm very consciously saying, Lord, give me something helpful for her. Give me something helpful for this brother who so needs something right now. There's a prayerfulness. There's, there's a, 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 an attitude of prayerfulness in the midst of individual prayer, corporate prayer, and then, and then prayerfulness. Right? The Bible calls it constant prayer, continual prayer. There's, there's just a, a prayer that's like breathing to us. Yes? Uh, ah. Let's stop here. I just love to hear what you, you're thinking. What are you thinking? We'll take the last couple minutes we got to just hear from y'all. Tell me your name. Phil. what I just did I pointed at the screen did you catch that I made fun of people who did that last night ah yes that's what you said that's exactly what you said you were not ambiguous there you go yes anyone comment question thought pushback disagreement debate Ah, great question. So, uh, there are disciplines we would call disciplines of absence and disciplines of presence. Fasting is a discipline of absence. We withdraw from a, a wonderful gift of God that is actually needed to live. But we withdraw from that to give perspective, to even increase your delight in the food that's a gift from God, not get used to it, not get jaded to it, to realize that you're dependent on him, so it's a, it's a discipline of withdrawal, as is solitude or silence. These are withdrawal disciplines. There are addition disciplines, I would call worship and fellowship those, but I would, I would put fasting, in, again, in the context of... Uh, wow, this is really sluggish. 
Could you just pull up the nine habits, please? Just There we go. So uh, I would put fasting and disciplines of withdrawal here. Now, it may be a bit extreme to call fasting suffering or solitude and silence suffering, but when I, when I tell my students, okay, as an, as an assignment for this course, I want you to take 48 hours off of social media, they find that suffering in a big way. Some back, some, a good percentage come back and say, I couldn't do it, couldn't do it, right? So, so a lot of what, how we even define suffering depends on where we are right now in a certain thing or, or idol or a kind of uh, resilience in our spiritual life, right? When I started fasting, like four hours, like, ah, all I could think about is food, right? But you do it enough and you realize, oh, I'm, I'll be fine, right? Like every time my kids say, oh, I'm starving. I haven't eaten for two hours. I'm like, Never use that word, right? Um, so, so, but I would put disciplines of withdrawal in the suffering category um, primarily, I would say. It, it could also be in part of fellowship. It could be part of worship. I, I see fasting uh, or solitude or silence as worshipful activities on my hand. I, I, it's a transfer of my delights. It's a, it's a putting them in their proper perspective, which is worshipful for me. So those sorts of disciplines I would put in the worship category. Um, the serving category, I, I have fasted to enable me to, to serve instead of take time out to eat. I have, instead of eating, spent time in prayer. So it could, it could be intermingled with a lot of these in an interdependent sort of way. And, and so very often for me, solitude and silence is actually a word-focusing discipline. That, again, at some point, we've got to limit these activities to biblically required activities and then put the other ones under subject. We could talk a lot about where they go. But, but again, every time I've thought about those kinds of activities, they fit within two or three of the other ones. Yes? Helpful, Phil? Okay. One more comment or question? You guys are brilliant. Tell me your name, sir. Tom. Tom. Yeah, it's tough to answer a question like that because. Yeah. Yep. I, I, right. <laughs> Excellent caveat, yes. Um, now, I, it's hard to answer a question like that in a particular way because to answer it well, I would want to sit down with every one of the parents and every one of the kids and ask about 35 questions of each. Just because what we are as ministers, all of us, are soul doctors. And what do doctors do? They ask tons of questions. Like Nurse Freddie, when you want to find out what's... That's Freddie back there, isn't it? Yeah. Nurse Freddie, the, the frontline job you have when some kid comes in is to ask them sufficient questions to know the diagnosis 
to know the prognosis to know the prescription, right? And that's what soul doctors do. And so I would want to find out, I wouldn't want to sort of make overly assumption sort of generalizations about these things. Oh, it's because the parents did or the kids didn't or the crummy Christian college fed them. But I'd want to talk to each one as individuals and find out what's going on. But you're asking a question about a very important issue that this increase in what are called nuns, no, if they, they, they check none on religious affiliation. They're not nuns. Um, um, actually, there's a crisis in women signing up to be nuns, if, if anybody's... No, uh, so uh, I think that's a bad idea, actually. So, um, but it, let me make some generalizations about what I think's going on. Part of me isn't too upset about, about and I'm not talking about the kids in this group, Young people saying nuns, a nun, no, no religious affiliation, isn't necessarily a bad thing, depending on you, how you define religious affiliation. Like, think of kids in the Bible Belt. I have a friend who's a pastor outside of, of Dallas, and he said, I have spent most of my career as a pastor outside of Dallas telling card-carrying Southern Baptists that they're probably not really Christians. They're just cultural Southern Christians. And, and so in some ways is what's going on because it's less and less popular or affirmed to be a Christian and so harder to affiliate with that because of all kinds of reasons the culture doesn't like increasingly. I have a friend who said, when I was a kid, being a good Christian could get you a job. Today it could cost you a job. And in light of that, are people saying, well, that's, that's more than, that's too much of a risk. That, that's too much uh, uh, social rejection for me to handle to continue to identify with this. So what you're doing is sifting out cultural Christians who don't like the heat that's developing, right? Uh, some of it, it, and you know, my students come to Biola and they write doctrinal statements. And I say, I can't make you believe anything, but I can make sure you know what the Christian faith teaches. And so if you want to say, I don't believe in God, I want to know what God you don't believe in. Because I might not believe in that one either. And so let's get the Bible right before we reject anything we think it says and make sure it actually says that. And so, so are we actually understanding the Christian faith rightly? Uh, are, are we really seeing a disconnect between true discipleship and just being religious people who are part of this, this sort of Christian club. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, there are lots of things going on. I, I know lots of things going on in Christian colleges that concern me, and especially secular colleges, although I think I'd rather have my kid go to Berkeley than a quasi-Christian college because at Berkeley they're not expecting any friends of their Christian faith, right? So lines are more clearly drawn like I went to. I didn't have one Christian prof, didn't have one theist prof in college, and so it wasn't confusing in one sense, right? Uh, so I'm not sure, but those are just some generalizations. We got to go. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for these great questions, these dear people, brothers and sisters, your children, uh, as we learn together this week, Lord, I pray it would be so much more than just intellectual information, but transforming truth that leads us to greater delight in you, greater enjoyment of you, more glorification of you through our lives. And Lord, help us to believe you and take you at your word. When you say, when we attend to these means of grace, we'll grow, we'll become more like Jesus, we'll delight in you more. 
and find all our lives found in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.